0: Welcome to the July 2021 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, it was 40 years ago this month, the New York Times published a story titled, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals, Eight Died in Two Years. The pandemic we now know as AIDS was becoming visible, but it would be years and thousands of deaths later before anyone outside the gay community started to pay attention. And the organization that emerged that finally was able to get the government's attention was ACT UP the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Journalist and novelist Sarah Schulman covered the early years of AIDS and was active with ACT UP for more than five years. She's written an amazing history of the organization in a book titled Let the Record Show. The book is a massive and comprehensive work. And Sarah is with us tonight to share her personal experiences with ACT UP and her new book. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, July 25th, 2021. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of July 25th, 2021. A new study found that early death rates for Americans living with HIV are no longer that different from people who are HIV negative. A study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine on July 6th, conducted by researchers at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, analyzed the death rates of approximately 83,000 adults being treated for HIV between 1999 and 2017, and compared them to demographically similar groups of people without HIV. Specifically, the researchers were looking at whether death rates varied in the two groups in the first few years after those with HIV began treatment. For those who began treatment from 1999 to 2004, there was an 11% difference in early death rates for those with HIV compared to those without. And for those who started treatment from 2011 to 2017, that number dropped dramatically to only 2.7%. For people between 18 and 34 years old, those with HIV were only 1% more likely to die within five years of starting treatment than those their age without HIV. Jesse Edwards, a research assistant professor in this study, said in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, getting the diagnosis with AIDS was incredibly bad news and the prognosis for survival was really poor. And that's not true today. Edwards added that someone diagnosed with HIV in this day and age can be linked to care and receive highly effective treatment and feel confident that their survival outlook is actually really good. And speaking of AIDS, this Tuesday, July 27th, is National HIV Testing Day. Testing.com surveyed American singles to understand their level of concern about contracting HIV, and they found the following key findings. One in four sexually active singles are, quote, not very or not at all worried about contracting HIV. 68% of sexually active single homosexual men are extremely or very worried about contracting HIV. Black and Hispanic Latinx singles are less likely than white and Asian singles to worry about contracting HIV, despite their higher infection rates. And 10% of respondents point to advancements in treatment destigmatization as the reason that they don't fear HIV. Face to Face here in Sonoma County is open and back to providing free anonymous HIV tests for anyone. You can make an appointment and learn more online at f2f.org. And here locally in San Francisco, after a decade as artistic director and conductor, San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus announced that Dr. Tim Seelig will retire at the end of the chorus's 44th season in 2022. A committee will be formally launched to search for a new director on August 1st. Selig said in a statement, quote, As I look back over the last decade with the chorus, the milestones are humbling. The chorus has been able to honor its commitment to music and mission. The music, new and old, has been glorious. The mission continues to stand as a beacon, guiding the chorus through what is now 43 years. c said, For me, the successes of these 10 seasons with the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus are not counted in numbers of singers or dollars, but in the lives and hearts moved by the music we've made together. End quote. Selig is considered one of the nation's most prolific choral directors and has had an accomplished 10 season at the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, marked by several distinguished milestones. This includes the Lavender Pen Tour, that was the groundbreaking tour that took the chorus through five southern states in the fall of 17, and the subsequent release of Gay Chorus Deep South, that was the award winning documentary chronicling the Lavender Pen Tour. Prior to joining the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, C-League was the artistic director and conductor of the Dallas Turtle Creek Chorale for 20 years, where he is currently conductor emeritus and served on the faculty of Southern Methodist University for 14 years. Now, if you've ever attended one of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus' performances supporting face-to-face up here in Sonoma County, that takes place every December during the holiday season, then you know what a character and a gift he is to this organization. You can listen to our interview with Dr. Seelig about the chorus's Lavender Pen Tour. You'll find it available for on-demand play anytime on our website at OutBeatNews.com. Just look for the link on the center of the page. Our congratulations to Dr. Seelig, and many thanks for bringing the music of the chorus to us here in Sonoma County. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the LGBT news headlines we're following, go to our website at OutBeatNews.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. The year was
1: 1981,
0: the dawn of a new decade following the liberation of the gay community in the 1970s following Stonewall, and so many positive things happened for LGBTQ people in that decade. Homosexuality was normalized by the American Psychological Association, same-sex activity between two consenting adults was decriminalized in many states, and gay villages suddenly became visible in big cities like New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. The rainbow flag flew for the first time in 1978, and gay pride parades were being attended by hundreds of thousands of people. But all the while, things were seeming to go so well, a silent and deadly disease was spreading throughout the world. On June 5, 1981, the United States Centers for Disease Control reported five cases of a rare pneumonia that appeared in young gay men. A month later, the New York Times published a story titled Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals, Eight Died in Two Years, and major television networks began reporting.
1: Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Robert Bazell now in Atlanta.
2: Bobby Campbell of San Francisco and Billy Walker of New York both suffer from a mysterious newly discovered disease which affects mostly homosexual men, but has also been found in heterosexual men and women. The condition severely weakens the body's ability to fight disease. Many victims get a rare form of cancer called Kaposi sarcoma. Others get an infection known as pneumocystis pneumonia. Researchers know of 413 people who have contracted the condition in the past year. One third have died and none have been cured. Death didn't scare me. It was, it was uh, living with this for a long time. That's more frightening than, uh, than death. Investigators have examined the habits of homosexuals for clues. I was in the fast lane at one time in terms of the way that I lived my life and now I'm not. The best guess is that some infectious agent is causing it. Today, researchers here at the National Centers for Disease Control said they had found several cases where people who had been sex partners both had the condition. The scientists say this probably means they are dealing with some new, deadly, sexually transmitted disease. The investigators see this as a serious public health problem. From an epidemic point of view, uh, there have been more deaths from Kaposi sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia than have occurred with all the cases of toxic shock syndrome and the Philadelphia outbreak of Legionnaires' disease combined. Researchers are now studying blood and other samples from the victims, trying to learn what is causing the disease. So far they have had no luck. Robert Bazell, NBC News, Atlanta.
0: That was NBC News reporting in 1982. And by October of that same year, over 850 people had already died and the government had done nothing not even acknowledge the health emergency, until this Reagan White House briefing in October of 1982.
1: Reaction to the announcement of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in over 600 cases?
3: Uh, over no a third I of them have died.
1: It's known as gay plague. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing that uh, one in every three people that get this have died, and I wonder if the president is aware of it.
3: I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You
1: don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that, Larry. Well, hey, do you? You didn't, you didn't I answer my do. question. Oh, I just How do you know? Does the president, in other words, the White House looks on this as a great joke.
3: No, I don't know anything about it, Lester. You, you, what does does the we, president?
1: Does anybody in the White House know about this epidemic, Larry?
3: I don't think so. I don't think there's Nobody been any. Knows. There's been no oh, personal or, experience or, here, Lester.
1: No, I mean. I thought you were Doctor, I
3: checked thoroughly with Doctor Ruggie this morning, and he's had no uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> no patients he,
3: suffered from A I D S or the whatever it is. Have it. gay plague. Is that what
1: you're saying,
3: or what? No, nope, didn't say that.
1: Didn't say
3: that. I thought I heard you on the State Department over there. Why do you stay over there? <laughs> <laughs>
1: because, because I love you, Larry. Oh, and, I, I see. It. Well, let's go not put it in
3: those terms, Lester. <laughs> <last> <laughs> oh,
1: I, <retract>
3: <laughs> I hope so.
0: By October of the following year, the death rate had increased to over 2,200, but the laughter at the press conferences didn't go away. Uh, I'll
4: the environmentalist uh, the president's
1: speech on Saturday as a fairy tale. Is there any uh, reaction
3: to that? Not true. <laughs> <laughs> fairy tales are not true, and this one's true. Lester's ears perked up when you said fairies. <laughs> There's an abiding interest in that. This is the movement in uh, Denver at the
2: Congress of the Mayor's Conventions, the press for federal assistance, getting at the AIDS problems. Is there any... The White House... The President that? has
3: been involved in, um, in, in, in... briefed on the AIDS situation a number of months ago in a cabinet meeting and uh, <laughs> ordered that high priority be given to research matters on it. Uh, the Center for Disease Control has been involved for some time. President will continue to be updated. We have recently asked that $12 million uh, be reprogrammed for research on AIDS. That's the extent of the President's involvement, which has been.
1: Larry, does the President think that it might help if he suggested that the gays uh, cut down on their cruising?
3: <laughs> okay, then. I, told
1: you. I didn't hear your answer, Larry.
3: Uh, I just was acknowledging your. You in, uh, you're interested it, in this subject. You
1: don't think that it would help if the gays cut down on their cruising? We're, re- help we're,
3: re- we're researching If we come up with any, any, uh, any research that uh, sheds some light on whether gays should cruise or not cruise, we'll make it available to you. <laughs> By 1984,
0: over 4,200 people had died from AIDS, and the White House still showed little interest.
3: Lester's beginning to circle now, he's moving in front. Go ahead.
1: The Center for Disease Control in Atlanta reports (laughs) that an estimated estimated 300,000 people have been exposed to AIDS, which can be transmitted through saliva. Will the President, as Commander-in-Chief, take so steps
0: to protect
1: armed forces, food and medical services from uh, AIDS patients or those who run the risk of spreading AIDS, and in the same manner that they forbid typhoid fever people from uh, being involved in health or food services? Is the President concerned about this subject, Larry, that it seems really to have expressed so much concern. Reaction here. I, you know, I haven't it heard. It isn't him only the jocks, Lester. Has he sworn off water flosses? <laughs> no, down? but I mean, is he going to do anything, Larry? I, I, Lester,
3: I have not heard him express anything. I'm sorry. Mean,
1: he has no, uh, no, expressed no opinion about this epidemic.
3: No, but I must confess, I haven't asked him about it. <laughs>
1: Would you ask him, Larry? Go back into the crowd. Have you been checked? The president, go to the I didn't hear him. the answer. Sorry.
3: Uh, <laughs> uh, it's hard work. <laughs> I don't get paid <laughs> enough. Um. Uh, Is there anything else we need to do here? In
0: 1987, six years after thousands of men had already died and having witnessed the government and mainstream society do very little, ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, emerged in New York. Now, it was an activist organization like no other. ACT UP was responsible for getting the government to start paying attention to what we now know as AIDS. Their tactics were unconventional and controversial.
2: Today's demonstration is the latest of many staged by the militant group ACT UP, which has gained increasing influence on AIDS policy. The atmosphere at the meetings and at the group's headquarters is characterized by enthusiasm and belligerence toward established institutions. Playwright Larry Kramer started ACT UP to accelerate the AIDS drug approval process.
5: What right does the
0: FDA and the NIH have to tell a dying person what he or she can do
5: with her or his body.
2: ACT Up strategy has been enormously successful in getting the Food and Drug Administration to loosen the regulation of new drugs for AIDS.
0: Living in New York at that time was like crazy because people are getting sick every day, three, four, five, six people that you hear about being
3: sick. We were very scared that the Reagan administration was going to put people with AIDS in internment camps. And I think that we came close to that in this country.
1: How deeply are Americans worried about AIDS? A Los Angeles Times poll found that 50 percent of Americans favor quarantine for AIDS victims. 15 percent said AIDS victims should be tattooed.
4: It was about people in power not caring about the lives of people who didn't have power.
1: Kramer delivered a fiery speech and I remember he asked uh, like half of the audience to stand up and he said, you're all going to be dead in six months, now what are we going to do about it? Up!
4: fight back, fight it! AIDS coalition to Unleash Power, we are a diverse, non-partisan group of individuals united in anger and committed to direct action to
2: end the AIDS crisis. Release those drugs! Release those drugs! When we're activists, when we really act up, we have a big impact and we get what we're demanding and when we're silent we don't. We'll never be silent
4: again! Act up! We'll never be silent again!
0: Where I really got a sense of community.
4: I mean, I got the feeling then that people felt that lives depended on them.
2: Healthcare is right.
4: Healthcare is right. Fight back! Fight back! Fight it! Oh my God. Oh my God. These drug companies are profiteering on our lives, and that we cannot accept that anymore.
0: ACT UP was arguably the most successful LGBTQ activist organization in history. Its unconventional tactics likely saved millions of lives over the last 30 years by getting the government to finally pay attention to AIDS. Our guest tonight is Sarah Shulman. She was a journalist covering news for a gay news organization in New York, and she was drawn to ACT UP and became an active participant. Now, 40 years later, after the virus became visible, she's written a comprehensive history about ACT UP, and the book is called Let the Record Show. Sarah, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. Uh,
0: It's great to have you here and to be talking about this amazing uh, work, especially, you know, on the 40th anniversary of this horrendous epidemic that we now know as as AIDS. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with ACT UP.
4: Okay, so I'm primarily a novelist, but I started out as a journalist. And in the olden days, there was the gay and lesbian press and the feminist press, and they were kind of underground papers for people reporters who would work for free because the, the material we were covering was completely ignored by the mainstream press. Mm-hmm. So 1981-82 I was a reporter a girl reporter on the go, and I was going to City Hall for the New York native, which was the gay male newspaper. The issue at the time was that there was no gay rights bill in New York City. Mm. And then AIDS was observed as a pattern by science in 1981. And I say it that way because we now think that AIDS existed for a century before and was probably in New York in the 60s and 70s. But it was only in that famous New York Times article, July 3rd, 1981, when science noticed 41 cases of rare cancer in homosexuals in San Francisco. Now, just to go back to that time, what's interesting is is that in that era, a lot of people were theorizing that homosexuality was biological. Mm -hmm. They were were theorizing that homosexuality was one thing and that it had a biological cause. So at the time, this disease was originally called gay-related immune deficiency because there was a concept of homosexuality itself as a biological disease. Now, if somebody said the words gay cancer, you would say, you're crazy. How could cancer be gay? Right. Right. Uh, So that was that. So I started covering AIDS very, very early. And I did some really early reporting on pediatric AIDS, on women being excluded from experimental drug trials, on homeless people with AIDS. But I also covered, surprisingly, the closing of the bathhouses when the city closed closed the bathhouses. Mm. And, you know, women weren't allowed in bathhouses.
0: Right, right.
4: So the fact that I got that assignment shows you how chaotic everything was because journalists were dying, editors were dying, nobody knew what the stories were. The New York Times, which ACT UP called the New York crimes, ignored AIDS. And so that's how these assignments were carried out. So for the first five years of the epidemic, 40,000 people died in the United States and the government did absolutely nothing. And pharmaceutical companies did nothing they owned the patent to failed cancer drugs, and they were trying to recycle them Mm -hmm. because they saw a huge market, consumer market. Uh, So in the first five years, the gay community was really... In chaos and trying to organize certain kinds of social services that gay people didn't have access to, especially because familial homophobia was so dominant at the time, people were ignored by their families and abandoned and so we had things like uh, gay men's health crisis had a buddy program where you'd be assigned to a person who had AIDS to help them do their food shopping and that kind of thing. There was God's Love We Deliver that would deliver home-cooked meals to homebound people with AIDS. But the political response did not start until March 1987, when ACT UP was founded. Right. Now, the events that led to that are quite interesting. There was a Supreme Court decision, the Hardwick case, Mm -hmm. that upheld the sodomy law. And this was... A total slap in the face to the gay community, which needed more legitimization to get the support that they needed, not less. And that politicized a lot of people who were in the streets and demonstrations without permits. Also, in New York, there were two actions, a collective, a small arts collective called the Silence Equals, equals Death Collective, uh-huh. designed a poster that everyone has now seen with an upside down pink triangle against a black background that said silence equals death. And they we pasted that around the city. And then a ZAP group called um, the Lavender Hill Mob got together. Now ZAPs were an action that came out of gay liberation And a ZAP is an action that only people who have no power can do, because it's when you burst in on the people with power and disrupt everything. Mm -hmm. And the Lavender Hill mob dressed up in concentration camp outfits and disrupted government hearings. So those things had happened a few weeks before ACT UP was founded, when the writer Larry Kramer gave a talk at the Gay and Lesbian Center in New York and said half of you will be dead in two years. And the people in the audience decided that they wanted to meet and try to organize a political response. And so they met a few days later, and that was the beginning of ACT UP.
0: Right. Well, and ACT UP was such a unique organization in the greater LGBT civil rights movement, right? I mean, it's really a standout. How do you see it as being different?
4: Well, ACT UP was probably the most successful recent social movement in America. I mean, the the idea, let's just start with how marginalized people were because Uh today, gay white male is a privileged category. Sure. But in the 1980s, that was not the case. So homosexuality itself was illegal and federal sodomy laws were not overturned until 2003. In New York City, there was no gay rights bill which meant you could be fired from your job, kicked out of an apartment or denied public accommodation like restaurant service or hotel. Right. Street violence was a sport to straight people. It was called gay bashing. Mm -hmm. And people used to do it for entertainment, come into gay neighborhoods and hurt people. And familial homophobia was prevalent. So gay people were very marginalized and extremely oppressed. And the other communities that were affected by AIDS, which were primarily poor people, women of color, drug users and Haitians were all also marginalized. So you have this movement of people with no power at all. And what's amazing is that in the six years that I cover in my book from 1987 to 1993, ACT UP won astounding victories. I hope you'll indulge me in just saying what some of those victories were. Absolutely. ACT UP forced the pharmaceutical companies to completely restructure how they research treatments they were all looking for one pill that that you would take that would cure your AIDS because that would be the largest market share. But the reality of AIDS was that it was a terrible disease as I'm sure you remember and people suffered horribly. It meant that your immune system did not work. And so you'd have very young people with dementia and blindness and wasting syndrome. And each of these symptoms were called opportunistic infections and act up forced Pharma to focus on the treatments for the opportunistic infections, which had a smaller market share and a lower profit margin. Right. They forced the Food and Drug Administration to make experimental treatments available to people who needed them, even if the drugs had not been approved. ACT UP ran a four-year campaign to force the CDC to change the definition of what constituted an AIDS diagnosis so that women could qualify for benefits in experimental drug trials. And that victory was so far reaching that today every woman in the world who takes a drug for HIV is taking a medication that was tested on women because of ACT UP's victory. ACT UP made needle exchange legal in New York City, which transformed the crisis in the city. ACT UP took on the Catholic church when they tried to stop condom distribution in public schools and ACT UP succeeded. ACT UP started housing works to find housing for homeless people with AIDS. And ACT UP changed the way queer people and people with AIDS saw themselves and the way the world saw us. Because before ACT UP, there was no accurate representation of gay people or people with AIDS in mainstream media. And ACT UP forced the new image of people fighting for Mm -hmm. their lives onto primetime television. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty amazing. For yeah. six years,
0: yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I really, truly remember those first reports. I was just graduating high school. I just turned eighteen. I was ready to get out and start exploring my world and trying to find, you know, connection. Of course, at that time, I was very closeted, and I, it was a, a very secretive sort of a thing for me. But I remember reading those reports and the fear. I can still feel that today. That the absolute fear that that. Um, this thing we didn't know what it was at the time was, but it was it was palatable. Um, yeah, it was a really it was a really really bizarre time. Act Up was also unique because there was so many different pieces of the structure, right? And the, and there was almost a you describe it as a, 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 a as a culture around these Monday night meetings, and, and all of the other things that went on beyond organizing. Talk about the. The sort of the culture of those Monday night meetings and some of the things that were associated with them?
4: Well, ACT UP was a way of life. Uh, There were Monday night meetings that had between three and 700 people. And the largest demonstration we ever had was 7,000 people at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Now that's Mm. large for a meeting, but it's small for a movement. It's not a mass movement people were totally committed. They did ACT UP every day. They lived with people from ACT UP, they got jobs through people with ACT UP, and they were very, very focused on being effective, which is when, when you study ACT UP, that's one of the first things that you see. It was determined by the needs of people with AIDS, and people with AIDS had no time to waste. So whatever people's needs were, the actions of the organization were focused on those needs. So there was no theory going on. As Maxine Wolf, who was one of the leaders of ACT UP said repeatedly, theory will emerge from your action. When you take action, you have to make decisions about how to implement it. And those decisions force you to cohere your values. And that's where your theory emerges. So there was never any kind of empty debate. Also, ACT UP was not a consensus-based movement. They did not demand agreement to go forward. There was a one-line principle of unity, direct action to end the AIDS crisis. And that was direct action as opposed to social service provision. So if you were doing direct action to end the AIDS crisis, you could do it. So let's say I wanted to do illegal needle exchange on the Lower East Side in order to get arrested to have a test case. And you thought that was terrible. We would fight about it, but you would not try to stop me from doing it. Mm -hmm. You just wouldn't do it. You would find people who wanted to organize what you wanted to do. Let's say disrupt mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral and you would go do that. And if I didn't agree with you, I wouldn't try to stop you. I just wouldn't do it. So this kind of radical democracy in which that allowed people to respond in the way that made sense to them meant that ACT UP had a huge range of actions in many different social sectors and milieus and many different styles all going on at the same time. And this simultaneity of response is what helped them be so effective. Right. That's why when I was writing the book, I realized that I could not tell the story in chronological order. It wouldn't be accurate because so much was happening at the same, same time. time. Yeah. And I needed a horizontal structure.
0: Yeah. So many different layers. I mean, you just don't see that type of organization today. Uh, you know, when there's disagreement in an organization, it typically fractures and then becomes maybe two or three different organizations. Um, and then there were all the affinity groups, um, all of yes. those groups that wanted to be part of. So talk about that a little bit.
4: Well, so the so the structure was that there was the Monday night meeting and there were official committees like fundraising or actions committee, media committee, and each one of them had a representative on the coordinating committee. It wasn't called a steering committee because people didn't want to be steered. Hmm. So the coordinating committee would set the agenda the floor would elect facilitators, and that's how the meeting would be run. But there were also affinity groups, which were groups of 15 to 20 people that met on their own time at, their own, at somebody's house, and they would plan illegal civil disobedience actions that were theatrical and creative that they would carry out on their own, and they did not have to get the approval of the floor, but the group would give them free legal support. So it was like a wink, wink, nod, nod relationship because ACT UP was infiltrated by the police. And mm, we knew right. it at the time. Every meeting started out with an announcement saying, if you are a representative of the FBI or the New York police, police Department, you're required by law to reveal yourself now. But no one ever did. But in the back of my book, I have the Freedom of Information Act, FBI files for ACT UP. And you can see with your own eyes that it was very much infiltrated. Oh, sure. It's all redacted now so this was a way because we knew that at the time this was a way to avoid having everything be exposed Mm -hmm. and then later when people got sick and died often their affinity groups would become their care groups
0: so as you were reporting on on all of this how many meetings did you get to attend
4: i was at act up pretty solidly from the summer of 87 july of 87 Till late in '92, mm. I was not a leader. I was one of the hundreds of rank and file people who went to actions and went to meetings, but I was never a standout person in ACT UP.
0: Gosh, you must have witnessed so much history in that.
4: Well, i, I mean, I, my book could—my book is 700 something it pages. Is. It could have been three times as long. Yeah. To be honest,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, so many different. I could just imagine all the different sub stories, right? You have the org- the organization, all of its actions, all of the impacts that it had, but then you've got. All of these individual stories from individual people, either who were dying or who had a loved one or who just got the scope of this problem right away.
4: Yes. Well, my book focuses on 140 people, because one of the important things about ACT UP, and I think about most social movements, is that it's not individuals who make these changes. It's the group dynamic. And in America, we're very attached to the John Wayne, you know, white male hero, heroic individual who comes in and saves the day. But that's actually not, doesn't exist in real life. Mm -hmm. So when we tell the history of movements only through a handful of leaders were missing the whole story of how it actually works.
0: Sure. I want to go back to Larry Kramer. You mentioned him earlier, uh, and there is a lot of mythology about his role in creating ACT UP. Uh, Yes. He certainly had a strong voice, but he wasn't the inventor of that. Talk about that.
4: Yes. Well, I interviewed 188 surviving members of ACT UP and not one person thought Larry Kramer was the leader of ACT UP. This was a media invention. I mean, Larry did, his speech was the catalyst for people to get together, but inside ACT UP, he played a very weird role, like he wanted a lot of attention, and when he didn't get it, he would get mad and storm out and be gone for a long period of time. There was a time that he wanted us to elect him president of ACT UP, and ACT UP, of course, did not have a president, so he stormed out. There was a time when he, re, he emerged and act up saying, they're dancing in the streets in San Francisco, a cure has been found, compound Q, which was this Chinese cucumber turned out to be toxic anyway, mm-hmm. so that was the case. Uh, you know, so he, he was not that influential, but he did have contacts, you know, he had gone to Yale, he was an upper-class person, and he had gone to Yale with the head of a pharmaceutical company, for example, who he got a meeting with, he had a lot of media contacts, and in that time, most wealthy gay men who had power were in the closet, and very few used those connections for the movement, and he did, and that's what was special about him. Mm -hmm. But the media at the time was entirely white and male, and gay people who were in the media were mostly in the closet. So when they looked at ACT UP, they saw the men who were most like them, and that's who they tended to emphasize. So there was kind of a misrepresentation. If you contrast mainstream media representation of ACT UP and who they interviewed with ACT UP's own media, you see the difference, because the camcorder was invented in the middle of ACT UP. So it really was the first movement to have video activism, and when you look at the the kind of newsreel that we produced, it's filled with women and people of color and people of all classes. Uh, so it's a, it's a very interesting contrast.
0: Yeah, no, and and you bring up a, a good point in the book about the the change in technology that really changed the way that ACT UP used media or was able to use media and being able to control what it collected and and then was able to provide because initially. One of the focuses was to try to get media attention for these disruptions or these the acts of civil disobedience, right?
4: Absolutely. When when, when ACTIV first started, people were still using film cameras, mm-hmm. 16 millimeter and Super 8, and there was no technology for copying off of a television set. So people would aim film cameras at the TV screen and film it you know, and we have have some of that footage. We've also collected early beta video where one person carried a huge video deck that was the size of a piece of luggage and the other person had a large boom mic, you know, and that's how they would record. And then the camcorder came along and suddenly you could just have your camera in your backpack and we were able to shoot footage, bring it to television stations, uh, ACT UP had a number of video collectives that made their own compilations, which they mailed in the mail, right, out to people all over the country and all over the world. We hmm. also timed actions to for, for live feed for uh, news programs. So like an action would be at 545 so that it could go right on at the 6 o'clock, the six news.
0: o'clock news. Yeah, yeah smart. Uh, let's talk about the Catholic Church a little bit. There are a number of religious organizations, organized religious organizations that are very anti-LGBT, the Catholic Church is certainly one of them. Why was the Catholic Church the big target of ACT UP?
4: Well, there were a number of issues. So the first one was that the only non-AIDS issue that ACT UP took a very strong stand on was abortion rights. And it was completely unquestioned. It was never debated on the floor. ACT UP supported women's right to abortion. And members of ACT UP were involved in clinic defense, protecting women who were going into abortion clinics and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The church was clearly anti-abortion. And then the Cardinal O'Connor came out against condom distributions in the public schools, and he was also against needle exchange. Now, normally, the Catholic church just stayed in the Catholic schools. But when they started to move into the public schools, that was a real assault. And, pe- and people in ACT UP knew that people would die because of these policies. So ACT UP joined with a women's reproductive rights group called WAM mm-hmm. and organized an action at St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1989 where we would disrupt mass. And the, the, the ideology behind this was that our lives were important and people who were hurting us could not hide behind the religious facade. So, we had big debates inside the organization. Now, ACT UP was mostly, I think, Jewish and Catholic, but there were Protestants in ACT UP, and they were very concerned about ACT UP looking like an anti Catholic organization. The Jews and Catholics were not concerned about
0: that. Uh-huh.
4: But so, the compromise was that we were going to do a silent die in inside the church. So we got to the church. There were 7,000 people outside, a bunch of us. I was also inside and we were ready to do the silent die-in. And just at that moment, this man named Michael Petrellis jumps on a pew. Now, if you look at Jim Hubbard's film, United in Anger, you can see this moment in the film. He jumps on the pew and he starts screaming at O'Connor, you're killing us. You're killing us in his thick New York, uh, New Jersey accent. Stop it. Stop it. And it's like chaos, you know, the police and everybody's screaming and people are throwing things and Connor 'Connor can't believe it. Anyway, a whole bunch of people got arrested. Well, the next, that night at the post-action meeting, which ACT UP always had a meeting after an action, some people were very, very angry at Michael, you know, because he had gone against what the group had, but other people were so uh, delighted because this action was reported all over the world. It was on the front page of newspapers in (laughs) Turkey, in Italy, because it was homosexuals with AIDS going into mass. I mean, it was a turning point for gay power in the world. Anyway, years later, I got to interview Michael. And I asked him, why did you do that, by the way? And he's like, nobody would let me in their affinity group. And I was angry. And it's such a human thing. And ACT UP was like that. You know, things just happen because Emotions were so high in ACT UP and it was so emotionally difficult to be there. There was so much suffering going on and a lot of things just happened because humans are human, mm-hmm. you know, but no one was ever kicked out of ACT UP. It was really a community with all its flaws. Yeah.
0: Again, something very unique about that organization, uh, for sure. I use that documentary, United in Anger, in my LGBT studies classes and, and in the uh, activism course that we do, we evaluate you know, that, that demonstration in the, in the cathedral. That to me, when I think about ACT UP and I think about the one standout event, that's the one, of course, that comes to mind. What do you think in the end the impact was? Did, did that, because it happened in the, in the cathedral take away from the message that was trying to be getting across at the time? I think the
4: impact was enormous, positive and permanent, for, for, for queer people and mm-hmm. people with AIDS. And the measure for me is, I interviewed a photojournalist named Donna Binder, who had been taking photos of ACT UP to photo editors, and they didn't want those photos. They wanted photos of emaciated people dying in their beds. But after the action at the cathedral, they wanted photos of people fighting for their lives. So it really changed the way media covered people with AIDS. Yeah,
0: yeah. So as you think about the, the greatest accomplishment and perhaps the greatest weakness of ACT-UP. What... The
4: greatest accomplishment, I think, was changing the definition to include women.
0: Mm.
4: I mean, uh, the reason that women were excluded was that in the 1960s, there was a drug called thalidomide that was given to pregnant women and their children were born without limbs. And pharmaceutical companies had to pay out millions of dollars in settlements. So pharma decided they would just exclude women from experimental drugs. Uh You know, so women could not get in. And this campaign took four years. It was uh, mostly women with HIV who are mostly poor and women of color. And white lesbians, for the most part, from ACT UP. So it was people who were completely outside of the power apparatus. There was a poverty lawyer named Terry McGovern, who was only 29 years old, who filed the suit. And it took two years to even get a meeting with Fauci. But people fought so hard and they used so many diverse tactics that after four years, they finally won. And most of the women with HIV who were in the battle had already died mm-hmm. by the time the victory had occurred. So I think that that's the farthest reaching victory. But I think changing the way that people, that queer people are depicted in media, it was also a long-standing victory.
0: Sure. What would you say is, is ACT UP's greatest failure, if there is one?
4: And we fell apart. And I go into that in great depth in the book. And there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I, I really think the main reason is that it was so painful. And people were so young. And people were constantly dying, really suffering. You're watching your friends fall apart. And I think that we kind of all went crazy by the end and there was a lot of acting out. There was Mm. people pretending they were HIV positive when they weren't, and there was all kinds of accusations. So that I think was the real reason that it fell apart. But also there was, you know, the more access that certain kinds of people got and the more treatments that became available to people with access, the bigger the gap between the haves and the have nots. And that really was one of the very divisive things that happened inside ACT UP.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, that's still happening today, isn't it? That yeah, well, that's divide. and
4: that may be partially our fault as well, because, uh, you know, some of us had a dream of ACT UP becoming a movement for universal health care. And if it hadn't fallen apart, maybe it could have been that. Mm. As long as we don't have a logical health care system in this country, we're always going to have divisions based on economic right. inequality and right.
0: racism. Right, no doubt. Uh, in the book, one of the things that I think is really brilliant is you, you sort of stand out in the book, some remembrances of individuals. And there, of course, are many, many unsung heroes in this. You've talked about Larry Kramer. You've talked about Michael. But who are some of the other unsung heroes in your mind?
4: Well, Katrina Haslip is a very important figure. She was a black woman who was incarcerated at Bedford Hills Prison for pickpocketing. When she was there, she found out she was HIV positive. At that point, the the conditions for incarcerated people with HIV were absolutely horrible. Prisoners were afraid of each other. They would beat up people with HIV. She talks about someone's cell was set on fire. And she, working with some political prisoners, Kathy Boudin and Judy Clark, who were also incarcerated there, started something called ACE, uh, which was an AIDS counseling and educational service for prisoners inside Bedford Hills. And um, they did all kinds of educational work. And when she was released and when other HIV positive women were released, they came to ACT UP Hmm. and were part of this campaign. But she unfortunately died before the definition to be changed because she couldn't qualify for home care since she couldn't qualify for benefits and she kept falling at home. And she died a few weeks before the definition was changed. So that's someone who should
0: be on a postage stamp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And unless people read books like yours, they're just not going to know. They're that's just right. not going to know. Uh, the documentary United in Anger is clearly, you know, one of the, the first and, and very informative documentaries about ACT UP. Uh, you've been critical, though, about some of the other ones. Uh, for example, How to Survive a Plague. Talk about what is different about United in Anger and, and what troubles you with the others?
4: Well, you know, when we went to get funding for United in Anger, we went to film sources and they would say, a documentary film must have five characters on a journey. And we're like, well, we can't really do that because this is about a group and we couldn't get funding. And then when we saw United in Anger, that's exactly what it was. It was structured around five individuals and it made it look like they were the heroes and that individuals make change. And you lose the whole breadth of the organization of so many people being involved in all these different actions going on at the same time. And I thought, you know, if young activists see this, they're gonna get the wrong information about how change is made. And the main purpose of my book is not nostalgia. It's to give hard to find activist information to young people today, who are involved in change-making. Because so many people in this country want change now. We have movements against police violence, we have movements against economic uh, inequality, we need immigrant reform, we have Palestine solidarity, we have all kinds of movements, and it's very hard to learn how previous movements succeeded. So that is my focus. So anything that romanticizes or makes vague how change really occurs, I think is not that helpful.
0: Right. Well, and your book does provide an opportunity for young activists to learn. Um, my students are in their early 20s. They have no concept about what AIDS was in the early 80s. Many of them don't know anything really about it because even still today in sex education, there is not good detailed conversation about HIV. It seems so foreign to them. All of the politics and the culture and the, the social pieces around AIDS is just foreign. So, for those young LGBT activists, uh, you know, what are the what are the really important things you want them to know from reading your book?
4: Well, it's, it's really for all activists. So, the the first most important thing we discussed is radical democracy in your movements and then direct action as opposed to theory, but also that you should design the solution. This was something that ACT UP did. They were not in an infantilized relationship to power begging those with power to fix the problem. ACT UP would become the experts on the issue. They would self-educate and they would design a reasonable winnable and doable solution presented to the powers that be and when they said no, we would do nonviolent civil disobedience and theatrical ways to communicate through the media to the public to pressure these institutions. And that's what running a campaign is that you have an intelligent solution, which is your demand, and you do the work to make it reasonable. And then you present it, and then you do the actions that are necessary so that your actions always have a purpose. And that's what running a campaign is. Another thing to learn from ACT UP is that women and people of color in ACT UP never stopped the action to demand consciousness raising about racism or sexism. What they did instead was much smarter, because after all, you can spend your whole life trying to change one person and fail. They marshaled the resources of the larger group for their projects. So for example, the Latino caucus in ACT UP saw that people with AIDS in Puerto Rico had no support. Mm -hmm. And so they got funds that ACT UP had raised through a high-end art auction to go to Puerto Rico and start ACT UP Puerto Rico. And same thing with the women's campaign. And that's like the way to go is to always be going forward and not stopping the action. And I learned a lot of other things like uh, when I was revisiting the interviews I had conducted People would say, oh, I was hanging out at the gay center and I noticed ACT UP in the other room. Or I went to the gay center for my health care and there was an ACT UP meeting. And I realized if your meeting place is in a space that your community already identifies with and trusts and already goes to, your chances of attracting more people from the community are higher. And just a lot of things like that. Like if you're holding a sign right on both sides. And don't use yellow because it doesn't <laughs> translate in newsprint and, you know, things like that. I have a lot of stuff about media uh, strategies. We had media professionals like Mike Signorelli, who came from People Magazine, right. or Ann Northrop who was at CBS. And in my book, I, re- I use a lot of their ideas that were very helpful to act up. Like, for example, Ann taught us that it's the soundbite is not where the education happens on television. It's how the reporter sets up the question. So educating the reporter beforehand is much more important than what you actually say. Another thing is that everyone in ACT UP was a spokesperson. We didn't have special spokespeople. So we had lots of teachings and lots of educationals and it was a highly informed uh, rank and file. Even in the interviews, most people could handle very advanced concepts. And that way, anyone could be a spokesperson for the movement.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to learn. There's an awful lot to learn, and it is fantastic. The book is called Let the Record Show by Sarah Schulman. Where can people go to find this?
4: They can find it at, preferably, their indie bookstore. And if they don't have an indie bookstore, they can order from uh, bookshop.com, which goes through indie bookstores.
0: Excellent. Bookshop.com. We'll put a link on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page and order a copy. Sarah, where can people go to follow you?
4: I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram and I try to answer everybody.
0: Fantastic. What's next for you?
4: Well, I'm basically a novelist. So I have a new novel. And I'm also working on a feature film about Carson McCullers. That's going to be directed by Jessica Goldberg. Mm -hmm. And it's being developed by UTA. And I'm very excited about it.
0: Excellent. Well, you're going to be staying plenty busy for sure.
4: Yes, absolutely.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us tonight.
4: Thank you. Take care.
0: If you're a history buff, you're going to really love that book. The National AIDS Memorial was created in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco back in 1996. And last month, on the 40th anniversary of the infamous CDC bulletin alerting the world about what would become known as AIDS, a national ceremony was held to remember those who have lost their lives, as well as those who have survived the pandemic. Dr. Anthony Fauci was among those to speak at this event.
5: Today's observance provides us with a chance to reflect on all those whom we have lost in the past 40 years from HIV-AIDS, estimated to now number over 730,000 individuals in this country. This is not just a statistic, for they were our friends, our colleagues, and our loved ones, partners, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, mothers, and fathers. The theme of this year's observance is AIDS at 40, envisioning a future we never imagined, reflecting that it was 40 years ago today that the first report of what was then a mysterious unknown disease, later to be named HIV-AIDS, was published in Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. During the subsequent four decades, we have seen unprecedented advances in basic and clinical research resulting in highly safe and effective strategies in our HIV prevention and treatment toolkits. These accomplishments are the direct result of the unique long-standing partnerships that were forged and continue today between scientists, healthcare providers, industry, and the HIV affected community. While these successes have resulted In significant decreases in HIV incidence and mortality, as witnessed by the long-term survivors that we honor today, the HIV-AIDS pandemic is not yet over. The latest statistics indicate that there are approximately 1.2 million people with HIV in the United States. About 14 percent of these individuals are unaware of their infection. Additionally, There were approximately 38,000 people newly diagnosed with HIV in 2018. The majority of these new diagnoses were among young adults aged 13 to 34 years of age, especially among men who have sex with men, blacks, African-Americans, and Hispanic Latinos. The COVID-19 pandemic has added yet another challenge that we must overcome as we continue to strive to end the HIV pandemic. As has been the case for virtually everyone in this country and around the world, this has been an extraordinary, challenging, and difficult year. It has required creative and innovative approaches to both provide and access HIV prevention, treatment, and care while healthcare systems are overwhelmed and trying to relieve the pain and suffering of those with COVID-19, including people with HIV and SARS-CoV-2 co-infection. Many of the lessons learned from responding to the HIV-AIDS pandemic will be crucial in our ending the COVID-19 pandemic. Two of these important lessons are, one, science will provide the solution to this pandemic, and two, Societal divisiveness is counterproductive in a pandemic. We must not be at odds with each other since the virus is the common enemy, not each other. An effective response to these dual pandemics requires an unprecedented coordinated and collaborative global effort of scientists, industry, and community partners to accelerate basic and clinical research. Ending the HIV pandemic is an achievable goal, one that will require that we continue to collectively work together in optimizing the implementation of the numerous evidence-based tools in our prevention and treatment toolkits, both in the United States and worldwide, as well as in continuing the development of new and innovative approaches, including an HIV vaccine and a cure that can be readily utilized by individuals with HIV and those at risk of infection. As we honor the long-term HIV-AIDS survivors today and remember all those we have lost, we must rededicate our commitment and continue to advance our efforts to achieving our goal of ending the HIV pandemic.
0: And that wraps up our hour. Tune in next Sunday night to Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on 104.9 KRCB FM, Sonoma County's NPR station. Yesterday, in the meantime, do have a great week and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Support for Outbeat Radio and KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken, air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County, with no antibiotics ever. You can learn more at RockyAndRosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCBFM Roanoke Park and KRCGFM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.